0: Hi everyone, I'm Natalie and I'm Karen and this is The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. Hi there, Karen. Hi, Natalie. Today's conversation is on techno-diplomacy. Um, and while technology has been a big part of how we work already for, for many years now, the COVID-19 pandemic has definitely impacted how we work at the podcast and also at the library and archives. And so it's interesting to consider now how multilateralism is evolving as technology accelerates. Yes, Absolutely. And we were fortunate enough to have Professor Gabrielle Baibi, an expert in media studies at USI, a Swiss public university. And his work and research actually also connects with the International Telecommunications Union, or the ITU, which is a specialized agency of the UN system. And of course, we spoke on techno diplomacy, as you mentioned, we defined it, we looked more deeply into it and what this means for multilateralism. And one interesting thing he mentions is the importance of looking back at our history, even though most people might consider technology a very modern topic. That's so interesting. I would also perhaps think it was more important modern topic, but we'll find out why not in the episode that's just to come. As always, we have some notes if you would like some links to Professor Badby's work, as well as some more information from the International Telecommunications Union. So let's take a listen. Mm-hmm. Hi, everyone. Today we are here with Professor Baibi, who is an Associate Professor in Media Studies at the Institute of Media and Journalism, Faculty of Communication, Culture and Society at USI. He is also an author. And so we are so happy to have you here today. Uh, Welcome.
1: Thank you. and Thank you for the invitation.
0: Yeah. So could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to dedicate your work and research in media history?
1: I was a young student, a BA and MA in Turin in Italy, and I felt in love with, with media history. I had a couple of dissertations on the history of mobile phone, the history of electric lighting as a medium, and then a PhD at Uzi, Università della Svizzera, Italiana, USI, as you mentioned, on the history of the telephone. So it's not easy to, to say why, but I think there are at least three reasons. Reason number one, it's always a matter of supervisors, according to me. So I met the right people in, in the right time. Second, I think that especially in the field of communication, there is a huge, what I call today, a newness ideology. So the idea that every new medium is disruptive, every new medium is better than old media, etc. And I find it a little bit irritating and disturbing. So I think that history is a way to balance uh, this kind of ideology. The third thing is the fact that if we think about communications today, even today is full of inheritances from, from the past. For example, we call the phone something that it's a smartphone, it's still a phone. Or uh, when we take a picture through our smartphone, we still produce a sound of the mechanical shutter of a mechanic mm-hmm. camera. Thousands of examples, but I think that all media are in the new forms of communication. That's the reason why I think it's worth studying history.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting and a refreshing perspective, because I feel that especially in the field of communications and even more so in technology, our conversations and our thoughts always lean towards the future and looking ahead. But it's very true that we do have to look at our past to really, truly understand what is happening currently and also what will happen
1: in the future. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I mean, present and future are, are shaped by the past. And so uh, if we look, for example, today at the internet uh, or mobile standards, they were not invented for the internet, they were not invented for the mobile, but they come from other previous technologies. So if we don't look at the past, we do not even understand them. But also digitalization or digitization, however you want to call it, is an historical process per se digitalization of the telephone, for example, started in the 1970s, or if you think about mobile phone, or it used to be called cellular telephone, or even in other ways, it's a technology that were born at the beginning of the 20th century, then rebirth around the end of the 1970s, then 1980s, etc., cetera, et cetera. So digitalization has a long story, has a long history, and without knowing it, I think it's hard to understand the present. That's the reason why I'm also passionate about failures. And if we think about the history of failures, especially with digitalization, it's always amazing how there is a long history of digitalization on the one end and on the other. It's not always successful.
0: Yeah, I think very much so. You're right. And I think we saw definitely the, not the pitfalls, but the disadvantages and sometimes the issues that come with digitalization, especially this past year with everything moving online. So you also recently co-edited a book entitled The History of the ITU, Transnational Techno-Diplomacy from the Telegraph to the Internet. And this was published in June of 2020. And already from the title, I'm very intrigued. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this book.
1: So first of all, it's it's a long-term uh, collaboration among a wide group of of scholars, let me say. Uh, in general, when we we think about edited books, uh, there is a kind of people they send the chapters, and the editors assemble all these chapters. This is not the story of this book because uh, our book is a different story and is based on at least two different workshops. Uh, we had one workshop in Geneva at the ITU headquarters, one workshop in Luxembourg. The first one in 2015, the second one 2017, if I remember properly. And we discussed for a long time the approach. We discussed for a long time the chapters. And that's the reason why I think it's a coherent book and a collaborative effort. Thematically, it's a book uh, essentially, as the title says, on the role that ITU had in shaping and guiding education, last uh, century and a half at least. So it's a book on the ITU, first of all. The ITU as the first international organization ever, an organization devoted to manage communication at global level since the beginning. It's a book on intermediality because it's full of several technologies, telegraph, telephones, cables, wireless, radio, television, satellites, mobile phone, internet, and several others. So we have different technologies treated all together, which is not always the case. And it's a book with a global perspective. We have chapters uh, on the United States, chapters on Europe, chapters on Africa, Asia. So the whole globe, we could say, is covered. And then, of course, it has an historical perspective. So the main goal is to identify long-term strategies of the ITU, starting with the foundation of the ITU, 1865 and even before, to the contemporary times with internet governance and with the race of the internet
0: yeah and I think it's really telling that one of the that the first iO that was created was centered around global communications
1: which is always surprising to me because there were technologies uh, older than the telegraph yet you was established because of the telegraph flows and telegraph networks uh, for example trains were older but I think that telegraphy was so important at that time because it allowed, for the first time, high-speed communication. And so not only at national level, but also at transnational level, creating a few problems and a few opportunities, of course. That's the reason why I think Telegraph was the first technology of communication managed at global level.
0: Yeah, that's right. So we also briefly touched upon this a little bit before, but... When we speak about media and digitization, we often look towards the future, and if not the present, always exploring our current capacities and the ways we hope to further advance those in the future. But like you mentioned, could you also elaborate more? Why is it so important to study the past and the history of media?
1: Several reasons I would say, and I always say my students that it's important to study history because they they have to understand the present. And the present is made by the choices that we decided to take in the past. We uh, always tend to think that communication is a discipline just related to the future, which is absolutely the case. We continuously say ways in which we will communicate, new technologies and whatever, but this future is based on the present. Even prophecies of the future are based on the present, according to me. Try to have a look at the prophecies of Bill Gates at the mid of the 1990s, and uh, Bill Gates himself imagined a future which were much more similar to the 1990s future than the future that we have today. Because it's impossible to forecast completely the future. It's impossible to understand the ways in which we will communicate even in ten years. And I would invite, for example, listeners to think about a future without a smartphone. Can you imagine it today? It's hard to imagine. While if we will have this podcast in ten years, let's say twenty thirty, I will see that probably there will be different forms of communication that we were not able to imagine.
0: Yeah, I think because of the the speed at which so much has accelerated and technology has modernized and grown just in the past couple years, maybe a most decade, it is at the same time so difficult to imagine a world before the internet before the smartphone but those things that time really did exist and actually that time existed much longer than when we had those things so it's it's quite interesting to think about that
1: yeah this does not mean that history is not necessary i think it's even more necessary because you have to be aware of the times in which the internet was not there or the times in which the internet was there but with completely different goals and tasks for example so the technologies of communication themselves they evolve and they change over time and history is the discipline of change because it's the only discipline able to see how things evolve in time one of the my favorite uh, argument for students in communication you know
0: that's that's wonderfully put and i think we often forget that digitization and technology and communication was and is a gradual process and it didn't happen overnight clearly and so we have to really always think about the past because it really does inform our present and future. I agree. (laughs) Yeah so here on the next page we love to explore the topic of multilateralism through many different lenses and I'm particularly excited to learn about its role in techno diplomacy. So before we get into it Let's ask the most basic question. What is techno diplomacy and why is it important?
1: It's a concept that we decided to introduce in the book, especially in the introduction written by B and Andreas Fickers. And uh, techno diplomacy has two concepts uh, intertwined that is uh, heard, let's say. Concept number one is standardization, concept number two is regime of regulation. I tried to explain these two ideas before. So standardization, it's very important to define standards in new technologies and even in old technologies in order to let them work. Processes in which technical standards, rules, and tariffs are negotiated are processes which are crucial for contemporary communications. For example, how much should a telegram cost? Which routes should a telephone call follow? Which are the experts assigning web domains today? Those are all questions in which standardization and standards are crucial. On the other hand, as I said, regimes of regulation is the second concept. So the implementation and control by a legally or politically recognized institutions. For example, who has the power to regulate the traffic of the Internet or telephone traffic or whatever traffic you can imagine? Who has um, the power to punish, to give fines, to maintain the networks? It's very important to maintain networks and not just to build networks. So standardization and regulation are at the heart of this idea of techno-diplomacy. The idea of techno-diplomacy is an idea of a process characterized by strategic actions, tactical uh, maneuvers among all the actors involved. And generally, uh, this requires a a degree of technical knowledge and diplomatic skills. That's the reason why we call it techno-diplomacy. Because the people involved in these negotiations, they have to be aware, on the one hand, of the political consequences of the decision that they are going to take. On the other hand, they have to be also savvy and expert from a technical perspective. And when they negotiate, they have to take into account both sides. That's the reason why we call techno-diplomacy. Who are these actors? Uh, there are several actors that are exciting about our techno-diplomatic future. Of course, technicians, of course, politicians, let's say. So people from governments or people that have political roles. But also, let's think about uh, private companies, like in the Internet today. So we have from individual experts to institutions that are national or even international. State bodies, but also international bodies like the IT. I don't know if I'm able to provide all the semantics of this concept, but I think that this idea of technical and the diplomatic level, put at the same time at the same level, I think it's crucial.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Actually that also makes me wonder if there is and what if there is, what is the role of civil society in this whole concept of techno diplomacy? Because I think sometimes we think about, oh, it's only for diplomats, only for maybe large corporations, only for those kinds of entities. But really, civil society, I think, also has
1: a part to play. I think it, it has a part. It has always have a part. Uh, let me remind, for example, historically, the role that radio amateurs had at the beginning of the 20th century to ask for a different regulation, a regulation in which, for example, amateurs uh, could experiment with radio waves. And they were able and successful to push national and international bodies to save a space for their experimentations. And even today, internet users, they have a lot of room. There are a group of pressures uh, from uh, users. There are lobbyists. So I think that even the civil society has a lot of room and a lot of space. And especially today with, with the internet and with all the societies that, for example, it made pressure to increase the civil rights or to increase the spaces for free communication, et cetera.
0: Yeah, for sure. Especially like you mentioned, as almost everyone has access to the internet and also an access to a handheld device. And literally anyone can have a voice and have a platform in an instant to share their ideas. More and more civil society is playing a huge part in this fabric of telecommunications.
1: There is just one fallacy in your argument, the fact that almost everyone has access to the internet. Mm. Right now, 65% of the people access the internet. This means that 35% do not access the internet, which is called as a digital divide. And I think it's one of the issues that the ITU itself is, is taking care of. Okay,
0: actually, so could you speak more about that than the digital divide and how exactly the ITU is looking at it, is prioritizing it, if it is, and working to close that gap?
1: There are different definitions of the digital divide. The definition that I provided before, it's more a technical definition. People that can access or cannot access it. Then we have other divides. For example, people that are able to access the internet, but they do not know what to do with the internet. So they do not have, in a way, the literacy to use the Internet for their own uh, empowerment. Of course, the ITU is involved in the the technical side especially So trying to bring connections to those areas that are without connection. And that's important. It's very important because, as the pandemic clearly has shown, being or not being connected can change your everyday life. Let me say it's not only the ITU, so it's not only an international organization which is involved in this process, but more and more today also private companies like Facebook, Google, or others are involved in this process. Theoretically, they are acting like public institutions, bringing the connection to areas which are not connected. But there is a problem here. If an international organization like the ITU brings connection, that's for general purposes for, in a way, empowering people and citizens of these countries and of these regions. If a private company do it, there is always a suspect that uh, this is for uh, their economic and business uh, reasons. That's uh, a huge debate today about public and private intervention.
0: Yeah, there's definitely many layers to that. And even the ethics behind that is a whole other conversation in and of itself. But yes, thank you for that. So this book also covers the history of the ITU, as we mentioned, and it was established in 1865 and is one of the oldest international organizations in operation. And obviously, since then, there have been many changes in our technologies and even in the ways we communicate. Yet you write in your introduction of the book that the ITU has been and still is one of the key places and players at the global level where strategic actions at political, economic, technical, and cultural levels are taken. So could you speak a bit more on this?
1: Yeah, in the book, we claim that ITU is an actor, an arena, and an antenna. So maybe we can start with these three ideas. An arena. Uh, ITU was and is a crucial place, we could say a hub today, that's a popular keyword, for negotiations of regulatory regime in the field of telecommunication. So it was a physical space, let's think about all the conferences, the plenipotentiary conferences of the ITU, but also a virtual space, because there was a continuous correspondence on paper in the uh, 19th century, and today more digital, among uh, different people at different national levels. So, for example, another interesting virtual place to me is the Journal Telegraphique, and today the periodic publication of, of the ITU. It's a virtual Place where people could exchange opinions. So that's the reason why we call it arena. Then we call it actor, because among all the actors that were confronting at that time or even today at the ITU conferences, as we mentioned before technicians, politicians, or entrepreneurs, the ITU itself is a player in this game. For example, ITU had and still has a key role in regulating, standardizing, or maintaining international telecommunication networks so it's not simply a place and a virtual place for negotiations but also a place where new ideas and new cultures new cultures of regulation can emerge over time a second layer is uh, what we call antenna so itu as an antenna so let's think about an antenna for telecommunications able to pick up messages and to bring to international discussion national or even regional issues. So the ITU was able to do it over time. Let me give you some examples. Technological transfer to developing countries was debated at the ITU, and the ITU was able to impose its own vision over time, or vision of future technologies that we discussed before, so the idea of how we will communicate in the future. It's very important to deal with communications during uh, war periods, how to communicate in special periods in which uh, countries fight each other, but at the same time they have connections through their telecommunication networks. What to do? Should we shut down communications or should we keep on doing uh, networks and infrastructures, maybe in order to bring peace back? So those are a few of the examples that, according to us, are able to frame the ITU even as an antenna.
0: Yeah, I really like this imagery of the ITU being an antenna. I think that is a great way to visualize and also describe
1: uh,
0: the role of the ITU and the aspect of techno-diplomacy and just global communications
1: at large. It's a form of techno-diplomacy, right? So the idea of antenna is embedded in the idea of, of techno-diplomacy because here we have the, the ability of technicians and of diplomats to, in a way, receive to process and to reshape ideas of communication. So I think it's at the core of the idea of technical diplomacy.
0: Yeah, great. So, I mean, we are in a new year now and it's a new start, but, you know, it's quite early to still forget this past year because it really was quite a year for many, many reasons. And I think it'd be interesting to talk about how the pandemic especially has affected transnational communication, global cooperation, and even techno diplomacy. What kind of effects has the pandemic had on the way that we communicate, um, even just amongst ourselves, but of course in the larger scale of globally?
1: It's probably too early to discuss about the effects of the pandemic because we are still in the days of the pandemic. So it's not easy. And then predictions of the future in general are unreliable. Uh, (laughs) Nevertheless, I'm going to say something probably stupid and that will probably change in a few hours, but I want to say my my opinion. Okay. So I think that the pandemic has shown clearly how the relevance of digital communication and, for example, broadband networks is, is crucial today. It's even crucial to keep the society together because without this kind of communications, probably we would have lived in a different ways in the last 12 months. At the same time, we have also seen uh, uh, different national, regional, and cultural approaches. So it's untrue, according to me, the fact that uh, in uh, our globalized society, all the cultures reacted to COVID-19 the same way. They reacted in a different way, even from a communication perspective. Point number three, according to me, it's quite clear how we need... uh, physical contacts, and we cannot live just with virtual contacts. And then the so-called Zoom fatigue, it was called in different ways. I mean, online and offline words are not two separate words, but they have to work and act together. And this fatigue is given by the fact that one word, the online word, in a way overcome the offline or the physical word. I'm not saying something bad. It was something necessary, but it's True, according to me, that we need to find a balance. And probably in the future, we will find a balance. For example, I think that the future of our jobs will change after the last 12 months after the pandemic. I do think that uh, smart working, for example, is something that was seen in a suspicious way 12 months ago and now not anymore. But it's also seen as an opportunity. So probably this will change the ways in which we work. But I also think at the same level that it's impossible to keep on working just at virtual level forever. We need to go back to a mix of physical and virtual balance, let's see. In terms of transnational communication, transnational communications are more relevant than ever today to exchange health information, to exchange knowledge and data, numbers about the pandemic, to keep millions of people informed and even entertained, because also entertainment is important in those times. We see how Netflix, for example, increased a lot. There is also a risk, uh, a risk which I would call nationalism or even statism, even for communications. The tendency of single countries to act by themselves, to regulate life and communications of their citizens in a different way at, at national level. I hope, This won't shape the future. Uh, The future is in in our hands. So we'll see uh, how we will be able to shape our future world.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you point out the ways in which different countries communicated differently and therefore reacted differently throughout the past 12 months. And so that kind of leads into my next question, which is how has then diplomacy adapted and changed to keep up with not only are changing circumstances with the pandemic, but also with our accelerating digitization and transforming culture, especially with things now moving much more so virtually.
1: Uh, digitalization needs diplomacy as much as analog telecommunications. But diplomacy is still there. Think about the Huawei case, which was huge just before the break of the pandemic, between the end of 19 and beginning of 2020. Uh, Or Think about the battle over the global control of the Internet between the U.S. and the the so-called BRICS countries. This battle was called the Cold War or the the Internet Yalta, to remind even the past, and there are two models which are opposing. One model is the so-called multi-stakeholder, the idea, especially supported by the United States and supported by ICANN, that private firms should participate in the global control of the Internet. This is opposed by the other model, the so-called multilateral model, uh, supported by BRICS countries, as I mentioned, but especially by China and Russia. The idea is here that Internet governance should be entrusted primarily to national governments and maybe international organizations like the ITU, as we mentioned. It's not easy to answer those kind of questions, and it's untrue to say that one model is better than the other one. But to answer your question, as always, we, we are seeing global fights among nations and among companies to control communication. From the battle between Marconi Company and Telefunken at the beginning of the 20th century over wireless telegraphy to the contemporary battle of big and American digital companies against Chinese companies. If we see today data about the most important companies in any level, uh, political, but also economic and business level. The most important companies in the world are American or Chinese in the field of communication, which is interesting because this reminds us, as as always, there is a degree of policy and politics in uh, the development of telecommunication. And today we have unprecedented factors, let me say. So We have digital companies exploiting different forms of digital communication among the most symbolic, powerful, and the richest companies in the world. Why? What happened? Why communication is so important compared to other era or ages in the past? Those are questions that need to be answered.
0: Yeah, that's really insightful and something to think about. So before we close, this is just a kind of almost a personal question I thought of just now, but Mm -hmm. I think... um, Especially this past year, we have been seeing not only the pandemic of obviously the virus that is COVID, but also the battle of fake news and misinformation Um, and even just media literacy and how that also affects the way that people perceive information, people decipher truth, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts about this and how you see... How we can go forward with this as communications only continue to evolve and spread as quickly as they do, uh, this this epidemic of misinformation and fake news will only also accelerate.
1: Let me say first, it's not the first time in which misinformation is a crucial aspect of our society, because misinformation, frankly, was born with humans. And humans as always communicate in a proper way, but also They always communicate in order to shape, uh, to have a reaction from other people. So, in a way, misinformation is information itself. Second point, as we know, uh, today we have technologies that are able to spread misinformation quickly. There are some, uh, for example, metaphors like and the virality of information, which is quite important today. Uh, the, the word virus itself has to do with uh, chemistry, bodies, but also computers. And <laughs> the ways in which computers reshape the word virus uh, needs to be taken into account. Uh, what to do? Not easy to say it. What private companies are doing? They are fighting against this misinformation. They are fighting against fake news. We have seen very recently how Twitter took a very unprecedented and relevant decision, decided to ban a U.S. president from its platform. They can do it because even the president of the United States signs contracts, and in this contract with Twitter, for example, it's clearly written how they should prevent fake news and they should prevent uh, circulation of wrong information. On the one hand, so it's written there. On the other, of course, it's a political act from a private company. Where is the balance here? I think that more and more in the future, also public entities, public bodies, should uh, fight against misinformation, should fight against fake news, should find ways to put this idea at the center of their agenda and to have public organizations Fighting misinformation is, according to me, a huge service to our society.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that. So, any final thoughts before we close? And if you would like our listeners to take one thing from our conversation today, which was so rich with so many different thoughts and topics, what would that be?
1: Probably the fact that communications needs to be regulated. They do not flow freely among different countries, and as always. There are political, there are economic, cultural tensions among different countries. And if the listeners want to take something with them, I would like them to think about international organizations like the ITU as crucial elements, crucial actors in this process since 1865. And that's the second point of my final conclusion. So the fact that in a slogan, history matters.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Professor Balbi, especially as someone who has an academic background in media and communications. It was such a wonderful and insightful conversation to have with you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge with us.
1: Thank you for your time and attention to the listeners. And I'm always at disposal to answer questions. You can Google me or whatever and send me an email and I will answer.
0: Yes, we will be sure to link all of your resources in our podcast notes. So thank you so much.